Hey guys, so I know that we have been talking about the OBG project for a very long time, but I just wanted to highlight that the reason that Nick and I really love this resource is that it really keeps us up to date on everything that's happening in the OBGYN world and the medical world at large. One of the things that I know that we are all concerned about and are hearing about every day in the news is coronavirus and how it's been affecting us as physicians and of course also how it's been affecting our patients. The OBG project has put together great resources summarizing the recommendations from our governing bodies such as ACOG and SMFM, as well as other um, medical governing bodies about COVID-19 and gives us a really good way to keep up to date with all the new information that's coming out. I receive all of my information through text and email, which is the easiest way for me to access that. And OBG First, which is their subscription process, really makes this very easy. If you're a chief resident like Nick and I, this is absolutely free for you for that first year. So definitely go ahead and check out the OBG project and subscribe to OBG First if you find that this is helpful for you. We have really found that this has been a huge resource for us this year. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Kriags over, over Coffee. coffee. So today's episode is the fibroid episode. I hope you guys are excited. Woo! Hey, what are our learning objectives on fibroids? All right, so today we're going to learn about fibroids. So for example, what types of fibroids there are. We're also going to talk about the problems that fibroids can cause. We'll discuss the medical treatments of fibroids. And finally, we will uh, learn the surgical treatment of fibroids. All right, Nick, so carried away. What are fibroids? Right. So fibroids, aka leiomyomas, are a non-cancerous overgrowth of fibromuscular tissues within the uterine wall. We don't really know why people grow these things. They're so funky and other people don't seem to be bothered by them at all. But we do know that they're extremely common. Depending on the population, the incidence varies somewhere between 20 and 80% develop fibroids by age 50 years old. But also importantly, up to 50% of women have no symptoms from their fibroids at all. Important in terms of counseling for women too, these are not cancer, even though they're benign tumors in terms of the way that you describe them. They don't necessarily increase your risk of uterine cancer. And the risk of sarcomas in leiomyomas is very, very low. That risk is estimated between 0.05 to 0.28%. Risk factors for fibroids um, include age, older women tend to have them more than younger women, black race, obesity, a family history of fibroids, nulliparity, vitamin D deficiency, food additive consumption, and the use of soy milk. Um, those are kind of trivia, like bar trivia facts there, Faye. I didn't really know or can't explain why that is. Me neither. So... Um, there is a whole fibroid classification system because if you couldn't get even more interested in the fact that these exist, there's a way to even talk about them very specifically. There are basically many types of fibroids and they are numbered zero through eight. Um, so we'll be using the fibroid subclassification system within the FIGO AUB system or abnormal uterine bleeding system. This system classifies fibroids as either submucosal, other or hybrid. So the submucosal fibroids consist of types 0 through 2. 
So a type 0 fibroid is a pedunculated intracavitary fibroid, something that is completely within the endometrial cavity. Type 1 is still within the endometrial cavity and less than 50% of the fibroid is intramural. Type 2 is still submucosal, however greater than 50% is intramural. A type 3 fibroid contacts the endometrium, but 100% of that fibroid is intramural. Type 4 is an intramural fibroid. Type 5 is a subserosal fibroid that is greater than or equal to 50% intramural. Type 6 is a subserosal fibroid that is less than 50% intramural. And a type 7 is a completely pedunculated subserosal fibroid, so a fibroid that is sitting completely outside of your uterine cavity. And then a type 8 are other types of fibroids. So these are cervical or parasitic fibroids. Um, and then the last type is a hybrid fibroid, which um, is called type 2 through 5 because this is a fibroid that sits all the way from submucosal and goes all the way to subserosal, each with less than half of the diameter in the endometrium and the peritoneal cavities. So one that basically sits smack dab in the middle of all three layers of the uterus. We will have a picture of these types of fibroids on the website, so don't worry if words don't do it for you. We'll also have pictures of all of these types of fibroids. So Nick, what are the problems that fibroids can cause and why do we care about them? So again, it's also important to note the problems that fibroids don't cause. So 50% of women are asymptomatic with fibroids, and so these are oftentimes just incidentally diagnosed or not diagnosed at all. There's not necessarily a reason to intervene on fibroids unless they are causing problems. So what are some of those problems? One can be heavy, prolonged menstrual bleeding, and that's probably the most common symptom of fibroids. For women who are at risk, so again, if you're thinking through our previous talk on AUB, you should still consider an endometrial cavity evaluation with a biopsy or a hysteroscopy DNC. Many times, though, this bleeding is benign just due to the fibroid itself, but the bleeding can be very heavy. Um, it can lead to iron deficiency and chronic blood loss anemia. Um, it can even cause people to end up in the hospital needing transfusions for significant fibroids. The presence and degree of that bleeding is oftentimes determined by the location of the fibroid and really the size is of secondary importance to that. Submucosal fibroids frequently cause significantly heavy bleeding. Intramural fibroids can also cause bleeding, but to a lesser degree, and subserosal fibroids are the least likely to be offensive in this sense. Um, the mechanism of why that is is kind of unclear, but is thought to be related to abnormalities in uterine vasculature due to the presence of these fibroids. The second category of problems with fibroids are related to bulk symptoms. So when fibroids are very large or they're in a location that is pushing directly onto another organ, such as right onto the bladder or right onto the rectum, it can cause a lot of discomfort, basically. So some of those symptoms can include pelvic pain or pressure um, that can be chronic or intermittent and often manifests as dull pressure or pain. Urinary tract or bowel issues, such as urinary frequency or difficulty emptying the bladder um, or having constipation. Venous compression is a rare problem associated with fibroids, and usually only large fibroids will cause compression this significant, but can cause compression just like a gravid uterus of the vena cava and lead to an increased um, thromboembolism risk. 
painful menses and painful intercourse can also be associated as these sort of bulky fibroids. And then finally, one of the things that we often will see in our emergency room is a concern for degeneration of the fibroid. Essentially, they outgrow, outstrip their blood supply and start to necrose in situ that can lead to significant pain, um, leukocytosis, low-grade fever, and uterine tenderness. Finally, reproductive issues are probably the last category of things that fibroids can be culprits in. Um, as we talked about with Dr. Seidler in our previous episodes, fibroids, if they distort the uterine cavity, has been thought to result in difficulty conceiving or an increased risk of miscarriage, but large studies have demonstrated there are probably lots of confounders within that, such as increasing age. Fibroids, though, have been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes otherwise, including things like abruption, growth restriction, malpresentation, and preterm labor and birth. So Faye, now that we've talked about all the problems that fibroids have been associated with, say we have somebody come in and is experiencing one of these various problems, we kind of have a choice, right, of doing nothing, doing medical therapy, and doing surgical therapy. But nothing is often not the right answer when they're having problems. So right. <laughs> where do we go from here? So first, let's talk about medical treatment. And actually, there's a really good practice bulletin on this that I'm going to point everyone's attention to. It's practice bulletin 96, which is alternatives to hysterectomy and management of leiomyomas. So we're going to um, talk a lot about what that practice bulletin talks about. I do encourage you to go and read that practice bulletin um, if you want to do some further research into this topic. So medical treatments, what do we have? Well, first of all, we as OBGYNs love hormone therapies, as you probably all know. The hormone therapies that we use are really there to treat the bleeding. They don't really help that much with other symptoms like bulk-related or reproductive issues. And that makes sense because we know that the bleeding symptoms can be caused by where the fibroid is and not necessarily by size, but usually bulk-related or reproductive issues are caused by the size of a fibroid. So you can imagine that medicine may not be able to treat a fibroid that is 20 centimeters. It's not really going to make much of a difference. What kind of hormone therapies do we have on hand? We have combined estrogen and progesterone contraceptives. This is the first line in treatment of abnormal uterine bleeding, but there is a high conversion rate to surgery within a five-year period. We also have the levonorgestrel IUD. Um, we have many different types on the market in the United States. There actually have not been any randomized trials evaluating IUDs for heavy menstrual bleeding related specifically to fibroids, um, but we do know that there is a decrease in bleeding and can increase um, hematocrit in observational studies. However, distortion of the cavity due to fibroids is actually a relative contraindication. Other things that we have are progestin treatments. So this can be like your implant, your injection, your pills. Um, and there's conflicting information about whether or not these treatments can actually increase the size of the fibroid. However, they can be considered for treatment of mild symptoms, especially in women that desire contraception because they can help with bleeding. The next few groups are things that we kind of reach for after these patients, you know, don't want to or cannot use combined estrogen, progesterone, contraceptives, IUDs, and progestins. So these would be things like progesterone receptor modulators. This is not currently available in most countries to treat fibroids. So the ones that I'm thinking about are ulipristal acetate. It has been used outside of the U.S., but it was stopped because of rare cases of liver toxicity. However, it has been shown to decrease um, the amount of bleeding in patient with heavy menstrual bleeding due to fibroids. Mithipristone 
was also something that um, was looked into in other countries, but it is not currently approved for treatment of fibroids. Um, it has been shown to reduce uterine volume by 26 to 74% in certain studies, which is comparable to um, gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. However, in the United States, we don't have the availability of mifepristone in the doses that are used to treat fibroids, which would be more like 5 to 50 milligrams a day compared to 200 milligrams for abortions. Talk to me a little bit more about these other weird ones, Nick, that we don't use every day. So what about those, you know, GNRH agonists and antagonists and aromatase inhibitors and things like that? Yeah, so kind of wish that I had more REI knowledge, but I'm going to do my best here. So GNRH (laughs) agonists are the most effective medical therapy for uterine fibroids, but are only available at this point as injections. So this is what you're thinking of um, as your luprolide acetate or the brand name Lupron or Depolupron. These initially increase release of gonadotropins, but with constant GnRH activity, there's actually down-regulation of the gonadotropins, so you end up in a hypogonadotropic, hypogonadal state akin to menopause. With that, most women will develop amenorrhea and thus improvement in their bleeding symptoms. And there actually is a significant reduction of fibroid size associated with treatment with GnRH agonists. This treatment, unfortunately, is only temporary, though, um, and the symptoms will quickly return after you stop using Lupron. So a lot of times this is used as a bridge to get to surgery, um, to shrink the fibroids, to potentially change your route of surgery, or to buy time to get your hemoglobin up in the anticipation of doing surgery. This can also, due to the mechanism of action, lead to a hypoestrogenic state so similarly to menopause, can cause symptoms like vasomotor issues, but also bone loss. Um, so you shouldn't use Lupron for more than six months without some sort of progestin add-back therapy um, or estrogen progesterone add-back therapy that comes in the form of 0.625 milligrams of conjugated estrogen with 2.5 milligrams of medroxyprogesterone acetate or just 5 milligrams of norethindra acetate. So again, Really great medications to use for short term, particularly if you're thinking that hysterectomy is where you need to be, but you just need to buy a little bit of time. GnRH antagonists, on the other hand, are really, really new. So again, GnRH agonists work by having a constant GnRH stimulation. GnRH antagonists, though, now are blocking natural GnRH, so again, induce this hypo-hypo state. Advantages of these medications compared to luprolide are that they're oral medications and they're not injections, which... Yep, that's a great advantage. But at the same time, they can still lead to all of those same things that we talked about with the GnRH agonists. So the menopausal symptoms with the vasomotor symptoms and bone loss. In the United States, the one that's available is Elagolix or brand name Oralissa. If you do decide to use Elagolix um, for your patient, you should still consider as well, similarly to the GnRH agonists, the use of uh, progestin or combined estrogen progestin add-back therapy. An additional agent that can be considered in the HPA axis is an aromatase inhibitor, um, such as letrozole. Small studies demonstrate a decreased size in fibroids, but aromatase inhibitors are not approved for this indication by the FDA. The last two agents that we'll talk about also relate often to bleeding. One of them is one that you probably are already prescribing to your patients that are coming in for fibroids, which are NSAIDs. NSAIDs haven't been extensively studied for heavy menstrual bleeding in fibroids, though we know that they are associated with improved bleeding in 
heavy menstrual bleeding for adolescents and for those who have heavy regular bleeding that is oftentimes ovulatory. But NSAIDs do, on the other hand, help with pelvic pain and cramping. And so this may come in handy and may have some benefit in terms of reducing bleeding. Antifibrinolytic agents are the other option. The one that comes to mind and probably is also prescribed, at least obstetrically, but maybe you don't think about as much in the GYN office, is tranexemic acid. Um, tranexemic acid is not well studied in heavy menstrual bleeding related to fibroids specifically, um, but is used with heavy menstrual bleeding in general. You can use 1300 milligrams PO for five days. All right, so Faye, I think we've exhausted medical therapy at this point. We talked about a yep. lot of different stuff. Um, let's move on to surgery now. Yeah, so you know the the question when you're treating fibroids is always when should you do surgery? So honestly, it is the mainstay of treatment for fibroids still. You can do it for many reasons. You can do it for heavy menstrual bleeding that has failed medical treatment. You can do it for bulk symptoms and of course that infertility or recurrent pregnancy loss piece. So what types of surgeries are available out there? First, there's going to be the uterine-conserving surgeries and then the non-uterine-conserving surgeries, which is basically hysterectomy. So we'll talk about the uterine-conserving surgeries first, and we'll first talk about myomectomy. So myomectomy is really where you just go in and you remove the fibroids or the fibroid that is causing the issue. Usually this is for people who are not done with childbearing or who want to retain their uterus for some reason. And it's usually much more effective if um, there is only a single fibroid or maybe one or two fibroids. It's not as effective for those patients who have innumerable fibroids um, on their imaging. You should try and complete their myomectomy um, in a minimally invasive way if possible for decreased morbidity from having a large incision. Um, and this includes laparoscopically, robotically, or even hysteroscopically if possible. Other types of uterine conserving surgeries are things like endometrial ablation. And this, again, is purely for those bleeding symptoms. However, some devices uh, are only designed to be used in a normal cavity and uh, not a distorted cavity. So you may want to take that into consideration if you have a fibroid that is causing some distortion. It's not going to help with bulk symptoms. And we do know that with endometrial ablation, there is a relatively high rate of re-intervention for treatment failure. Um, and finally, if you think that this person is at risk for developing endometrial carcinoma or potentially has lesions that could eventually become endometrial carcinoma, endometrial ablation is really not the first thing that you should be reaching for because it can cause scar tissue within the uterus, thus making it very, very difficult to go back in and resample that endometrium. And last but not least, there's the uterine artery embolization. So uterine ar artery embolization is usually completed by our VIR colleagues, uh, and this can lead to shrinkage of fibroids by 30 to even 46%. However, those with bigger uteri and or fibroids are at higher risk of failure. Um, and again, just like endometrial ablation, there is a relatively high rate of reintervention for treatment failure. All right, Nick. So the last one, of course, is hysterectomy. Talk to me about hysterectomy. Hysterectomy, of course, is definitive treatment, which is probably its biggest advantage. Um, it's suggested for women who are having severe hemorrhage, not responsive to other treatments, 
women who are done with childbearing and have other issues that need to be addressed through hysterectomy, such as EIN or endometriosis, or women who have failed prior minimally invasive therapy for fibroids, or just if they desire definitive treatment of these symptoms and don't want to pursue medical therapy. Um, again, it should be talked about as an option for patients from the outset if appropriate. The main advantage of hysterectomy is that it's going to, again, eliminate your symptoms. Um, it's going to eliminate any future further recurrent problems from fibroids too. But again, there is morbidity to hysterectomy. It is major surgery. So morbidity may outweigh these benefits if it's just like a solitary subserosal fibroid or a little pedunculated fibroid, or if it's a submucosal fibroid that may be easily removed by hysteroscopy. In terms of suggesting route of hysterectomy, we won't get into that deeply today, but in general, minimally invasive hysterectomy should be pursued when possible to decrease morbidity. ACOG lists that in terms of approach, vaginal hysterectomy is preferred minimally invasive approach, followed by laparoscopic, and then finally, not minimally invasive approach. All right, Nick, that brings us to the end of our fibroid episode. So let's go ahead and sum up. All right, so we began today talking about what are fibroids. Again, leiomyoma is non-cancerous overgrowths of fibromuscular tissue within the uterine wall that can be present in somewhere between 20 and 80% of women. Risk factors include age, black race, obesity, family history, um, and then the weird ones like vitamin D deficiency and food additive consumption. There is a FIGO scoring system or grading system for fibroids um, that again we'll have on the website but basically gradates these fibroids from being submucosal all the way out to subserosal and then the hybrid variety. We know that fibroids can cause many different issues. The most likely is heavy prolonged menstrual bleeding, which can be related to where the fibroid is. For example, a submucosal fibroid is much more likely going to cause heavy menstrual bleeding than a subserosal fibroid. Size is usually of secondary importance in this case. Fibroids can also cause bulk-related symptoms, and this is usually due to the size of the fibroid or the location of the fibroid. And this can cause things like pelvic pain or pressure, as well as urinary tract or bowel issues. And finally, it can cause reproductive issues. Um, we know that fibroids have been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes, such as abruption, fetal growth restriction, malpresentation, preterm labor, and birth. We then moved on to treatment of fibroids, and we spoke first about a variety of medical therapies, um, again, that can be used to treat certain goals with respect to the presenting symptoms of the fibroids. For bleeding, the first-line therapy or hormonal therapies, um, they don't help that much with other bulk-related symptoms or reproductive right. issues, but we often reach first for combined estrogen, progestin, contraceptives, um, but noting that there's a high rate of conversion to surgery within five years. Levonorgestrel IUDs and progestin-only treatments such as the implant or injection can also be considered, especially for the treatment of mild symptoms in women that desire contraception. Further options include progesterone receptor modulators such as ulipristal or mifepristone, though those are not studied and highly available in the United States. GnRH agonists such as luprolide acetate is a very common treatment. Um, and is well studied, though again can lead to menopausal symptoms um, and 
Thus, add-back therapy should be considered if used for longer than six months. Similarly, GnRH antagonists such as elagolics are now newly available in the United States but have similar considerations and side effects to the GnRH agonists. Aromatase inhibitors, antifibrinolytic agents, and NSAIDs are also considerations in your total fibroid treatment scheme. Surgery is still the mainstay treatment for fibroids in this country, and you can do them for things like heavy menstrual bleeding that has failed medical treatment, bulk symptoms, and of course, infertility or recurrent pregnancy loss. We divided our surgical uh, options to uterine conserving and non-uterine conserving. So uterine conserving options include myomectomy, which work best for people who are not done with childbearing or want to retain their uterus for some reason, and works best if there are um, a single or just two or three fibroids instead of innumerable fibroids. Endometrial ablation uh, can also be helpful for bleeding symptoms. However, we need to remember that some devices can only be used in a normal uterine cavity and not a distorted cavity. Uterine artery embolization is also a way to shrink fibroids and help with bleeding symptoms, but there is still a relatively high rate of reintervention for treatment failures, especially for patients who have larger fibroids. And finally, hysterectomy is the definitive treatment for fibroids and are suggested for women who have severe hemorrhage that's not responsive to other treatments and patients who are done with childbearing or have failed other prior minimally invasive therapies for fibroids. The main advantage, again, is that it eliminates symptoms and any recurrent problems from fibroids, but it is major surgery and therefore comes with all the morbidities um, of major surgery that definitely needs to be discussed with your patient. When possible, minimally invasive hysterectomies should be performed compared to laparotomies. All right, guys. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. If you want to support us on the show in exchange for some shout-outs or some cool swag, head on over to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. For all adjunct learning materials, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction for this or any of our previous episodes, or you want to just send us a shout out or some love, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 